Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. This is the second part of a episode looking at the new coronavirus regulations, which have very significantly restricted the movement of every person in the UK. And I want to make it clear at the outset, as I did in the first episode, that everybody has a responsibility to follow the government guidance, which will keep us safe, protect the NHS and save lives. And you can find the latest guidance on the NHS website. There are, however, also new laws, which in many respects, are different to the guidance and which I'm going to try and speak to people who can understand and explain what they mean. So today I'm speaking first to Kirsty Brimlow QC, who is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers. And then in the second part of the episode, I'll be speaking to Aswini Wirarante and Sophie Miles, who will be talking about the impact of the new regulations and the new Coronavirus Act on people with mental health issues. The podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmith Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And for 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to support the podcast and if you also want to read the regulations and laws that I'm talking about, as well as the guidance which everyone must follow, then please go to patreon.com forward slash better human. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. Thanks so much for coming on, Kirsty. I'm interested to hear your views about these regulations and particularly from your perspective as a criminal lawyer and also somebody with experience of antisocial behaviour and those kind of areas which we we may be able to draw analogies from or we may not. The first question I was going to ask you is, is there a difference here because this isn't public order legislation, it's public health legislation and, and what difference might that be? Adam, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm delighted to join you today. It's always very important when there are regulations that are introduced to look at the parent statute, the statute that's actually given power to those regulations. And in this situation, the regulations are empowered under the uh, under the Public Health Act and so not actually under a Public Order Act. That is a difference. So that it's under the Public Health Act 1984 uh, section 45C. So you can see what the statutory purpose of the regulations are. And it's set out that the statutory purpose of these regulations is to prevent, protect against, control, or provide a public health response to the incident spread of infection or contamination. So that's very different to a public order legislative intent. And what it means ultimately is when it comes to any enforcement, the police, those enforcing, which actually includes community police officers who don't necessarily have the same frontline experience as your as your uh, average uh, police officer, if I, if I can put it like that. What that means is, is that they have to really be applying uh, uh, the intention of that of that empowerment. Right, and 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 when they're apply, what does that look like in sort of on the on the on the street and on the beat? Yeah, so I mean, you know, what what does it look like? You know, uh, what, what discretion is there? The difficulty with these regulations is there. 
very wide ranging and quite vague, which is why we've seen a disparity in how they've been applied. And we've also seen, frankly, an abuse of power by the, obviously, Derbyshire police has been highlighted, but there's other examples which have been particularly put on social media, where the the police have not, in fact, been applying the spirit of the regulations, which is to protect and to prevent and to contain the spreading of a pandemic. It's not in order to police nuisance, for example, or to uh, exceed with their powers of of stopping vehicles uh, or to exceed with their powers of setting up road roadblocks and road checks. And so that's where the root of the regulations is is very important to look at. Right. And, and, and that raises a, a, a few interesting questions, doesn't it? Because it's a different kind of policing to the policing that the police are used to, which invariably will be really about public order, nuisance, criminal behaviour. Um, and this is really quite different, isn't it? It's it's a public health function, which almost, you know, could might not be something they're used to. Yeah, I think it is and it isn't. I mean, in fact, the, the probably the, the closest example on a public order aspect where you're looking at preventative behaviour. So really looking at behaviour and intervening in order to prevent a crime, whereas here the argument would be you're intervening in order to prevent the spread of the disease of coronavirus, would be ASBO, so the antisocial behaviour orders, which actually came into law in 1998 and then they were subsequently replaced in 2014. Those orders were highly controversial and criticised because what they ended up doing was, in fact, criminalising particularly children and criminalising certain uh, groups of people who had certain behavioural difficulties. And hence, they that was one of the reasons why they were replaced. But what's quite interesting, I think, with this is that the concept of actually policing Antisocial behaviour is actually fairly new because I mean it was only really 1998. This came in with the Labour Party, in fact, that this was seen as something which needed to come within police power. So, in fact, the police have been policing public spaces, dealing with behaviour for for around 20 20 plus years, but it's still relatively new in terms of a, a criminal law framework. And. And how does it work in terms of, you know, because we've got crimes in this, we've got potential criminal behaviour in this act, I'm sorry, in these regulations. So we've got, you can be committing an offence if you are um, not, if you're leaving the house without a reasonable excuse within the meaning of the regulations, for example, or gathering in public with more than two people without a reasonable um, excuse or without a, one of the, provided for reasons but the, the, there's a whole there seems to be in terms of the way the police are, are, are approaching it a whole level in fact it seems that they think most of their behavior will involve sort of persuasion discussion uh querying what people are doing and trying to pers- trying to engage with people before they come to enforcement and that that is quite a big responsibility for the police, isn't it? And also might lead to some confusion. Yeah. 
I think the, the, the police, there's actually some new guidelines which is, were issued only yesterday from the National Police Chiefs Council. So they were issued on the 31st of March. And they include a basic framework to the police that they should engage, explain, encourage and enforce, with enforce being the ultimate, the last resort effectively, enforce meaning in other other words, taking an action of issuing a fixed penalty notice or instigating the process of a, a prosecution, which is the issuing of a summons through a magistrate's court. So, the, the, there is there is guidance and framework. What I would say is the police also have been fairly familiar for some time now with how to police protests. It's not been without its issues, as Adam, I know you will know, because we've both been on cases relating to peaceful protesters. Uh, in fact, perhaps most, most recently in the, in the Court of Appeal. But one one way of policing that have come through from their experience on protests have been to use a five-stage removal test. So if you were dealing with a obstruction of a highway, for example, what the police were encouraged to do was to go through five steps, appealing to the person to leave, then giving a reason why they should leave. So setting out the legal framework as to what offence that they were potentially committing. And then a sort of personal one-to-one saying, actually, you really don't want to get a criminal record at your age. You're only young, you know, whatever the situation was. And then finally, a is there anything I can say or do which will make you now leave and then at that point if none of that worked at that point there was then the potential for the action on the arrest so the engaging with the criminal system and I think that probably was reasonably effective when it was being carried out by police in peaceful protest situations and was at least giving a chance to members of the public and particularly we've seen in recent times who are acting out of conscience and they were acting for particularly climate change with really huge causes and causes which are scientific scientifically backed and causes which I think most people now would agree were and are ones which really should inform protests. And so the policing framework that developed around managing those protests overall was one which was engaging with people appropriately before jumping to that aspect of putting them within a criminal justice framework. It didn't always work. And I certainly was defending in one case last year where I felt none of them should have been arrested. They could all have been dealt with by uh, words of caution at the scene in order to disperse. I think the difficulty we're seeing here Uh, with these regulations is that they've come in and the police appear to have been left to their own devices in order to interpret them how they wished. And the result really has been, from my perspective, from a really from a, a legal perspective, looking at public law and looking at criminal law frameworks, it it has been quite chilling. And I would say that it's also deterred the, the more t- timid people, the more vulnerable people, the people who should be protected by laws, it might well have deterred them from leaving their houses when they're perfectly entitled to do so and they wouldn't be breaking any regulation in doing so. And I think that's a real issue and all it does ultimately is engender uh, distrust in the police. 
and 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 what do you think could have been done differently because i because i guess this isn't these are probably aren't the last regulations we're going to see and there may be amendments to these regulations there may be different regulations as as either actions are ratcheted up or or, or diluted the um in terms of the lockdown do you think would it be necessary to have the guidance to work with the police to produce guidance at the point where the regulations are released and is that realistic you know how can you avoid in these fast moving times and these very difficult circumstances how can you avoid these kind of issues arising yeah it's a very good point because the the regulations obviously were brought in under emergency powers so effectively that means there's 28 days before they have to to go under approval by parliament so the debate we're having now would normally be debated within a, within a parliamentary setting in those circumstances, I see absolutely no reason why you cannot have those in uh, the top positions within the uh, police and at a national level, because the difficulty we have in this country is we have so many disparate police forces. So at the national level, issuing guidance and emphasising that engagement and explanation and encouragement of civilians who may well consider that they are behaving perfectly reasonably, that that should be occurring foremost. And the police should be very slow to try and engage in any form of uh, castigation, which would include issuing of a fixed penalty notice. One of the issues that arose with ASBOs was the introduction was felt to be in some ways seen as a a softish way of dealing with nuisance and preventing criminal behaviour, particularly relating to young people, because it was not criminalising. But of course, the difficulty was, was that ultimately those ASBOs were, were breached and the majority of them were breached because the core, the core, behavioural issue wasn't addressed. And ultimately, you ended up with huge numbers, thousands of children in particular being criminalised. And that was not initially meant to be the the purpose of an ASBO. And hence, they were perhaps rather quietly eventually put to, put to one side. But we still have the overhang of policing of public spaces. And these regulations really feed into, into that. And I would have expected the police to have learnt lessons from what went wrong previously with with policing public spaces and, uh, and policing civilians. And so my suggestion would be that there should be firm guidance right from the start and general comments, we always police by consent, which is what was issued quite early on, it's not really understandable. It has to be much more concrete. Uh, and we could see that by the way um, things have things have really played out, particularly in, in some of those police forces such as Derbyshire. And in fact, in Lancashire, there's been a, a huge number of issue of fixed penalty notices. We don't know if those were justified yet, and we're not going to know until somebody actually starts to challenge them and takes them to court. And really, that's not what you want civilians to be having to focus on at this time when it's obviously quite stressful for for many people and they're they're dealing with obviously difficult economic situations as well. So the the system obviously has to have an element of punishment there. However, it it really needs to be administered uh, administered properly. And uh, so far, we've had a real failing with that. So um, I'd encourage the guidance to be given 
at the start alongside the regulations. And I don't see any reason why it can't be. Yeah. And, and the MPCC and College of Policing Guidance, that, as you say, was released yesterday, 31st of March, yeah. I think is, 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 is much, much better than the than some of the stuff that's coming out of police forces but it's quite extraordinary where you see um the guidance effectively um giving the giving a um a bit of a telling off to some of the police forces indirectly it's sort of a subtweet where it says road checks on every vehicle is equally disproportionate and we don't want the public sanction for traveling a reasonable distance to exercise so so that is a a, a bit of a messy situation to have got into although i mean perhaps understandable given the circumstances but uh, it won't be understandable next time that, that when they have to change these because we now know what the issues are like that are likely to arise are yeah i mean i i think that's that's a really fair point and in fact that was one of the things when i looked at the, the guidance as well i picked out that they've put that in there and also in the guidance it is set it's set down that officers should use their common sense. I mean, why you have to put that in writing is 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 a real concern. But obviously, you do have to put it in writing, and so there's no reason why, alongside any further regulations coming coming forward in the future, that these basic reminders of appropriate policing and the policing that we have in this country are, are are set down, and I think they do need to be set down. And we don't know the reasons for that. It's, it's possible as well. I, th- I suppose that we have a number of police officers who are being brought in who now have powers, such as community police officers, who might not normally be in these situations exercising these types of powers and also I think we've got some retired officers back who might have been for example custody sergeants more used to booking in um, suspects at the police desk and suddenly they're out on the street with powers and so perhaps they they're just lacking that basic policing training and so I'd really encourage that the police commissioner goes back to basics with any further any further regulations and they can do it because I think the the, the guidance in the National Police Chiefs Council uh, as, as set out um, published yesterday is, is is good. It's very it's very good. It's very clear, and hopefully it'll remove some of the fear that that people have been feeling about actually leaving their own homes, which which will be terrible because some people will need to get in a car and travel to a local beauty spot uh, for all sorts of a variety of reasons that might be the closest place for them to go and exercise uh, or it might be that uh, in fact under the regulations that they need to do it for their own sanity and I think we could all um, we can all sympathize with that at different points but obviously it's common sense proportionality and you also need so you need you need restraint on both sides you need you need the general public to just realize we're not all flocking on top of Snowden, of course not. And for the police to apply their common sense, if you have a, a, a couple or a family in a, in a car or one person in a car who has driven a distance to go to a spot, there's no one else around, they have to apply their common sense to allow that person to to carry on with, with, with what they're doing. Uh, otherwise, we, we there's always that tension, I think, Adam, with with we don't like to use the word police state but there's always that tension when you have 
powers given such as these, which are quite vague and broad ranging. And we always need to be alert as well as conscious of, of protecting the health of people in the country, we always need to be alert to not restrict as well those freedoms that are very, very important to the society that we also live in. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that, Kirsty, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Sophie and Aswini. Um, It's really useful to have experts on the podcast who can talk about the these very very wide-ranging powers the from the coronavirus act and the coronavirus regulations but from the perspective of particular groups and i think there's been lots of public discussion about you know can can i go out for a second jog in the evening what about visiting my my relatives who are elderly but not necessarily i might not consider them to be vulnerable those sorts of things but i haven't heard much discussion about people who have mental health issues um, and particularly you, you've been doing some writing on people who lack capacity and um, which is a legal term and I thought we could start with Sophie just to understand what that means and who, who those people are. So capacity uh, really means ability to, to make an informed decision and the Mental Capacity Act provides that if someone can't make a particular decision uh, then that decision can be made for them in their best interests. And uh, someone who can't make a decision uh, will be somebody who is unable to understand the information that they need to understand or remember it long enough or use it and weigh it to make the decision. And for the Mental Capacity Act to apply, it's got to be the case that the reason they can't make that decision is that they have an impairment or a disturbance in the way that their mind or brain works. So we're talking about um, groups of people, for example, those with perhaps dementia, perhaps learning disabilities, or those who are um, suffering from a, a fairly acute um, phase of a mental illness. That group of people would find adapting to these kind of changes into the way that everyday society works particularly complicated, I would have thought. Well, absolutely. And if you think of sort of two examples, first of all, older people who may be living quite independently, but who may, for example, have um, an earlier form of dementia and have memory difficulties, just to remember that you're not supposed to go to the group that you normally go to or the shop that you normally go to and why you shouldn't do it. Um, I think that is a real challenge. And I think a lot of people will have seen people that they know going through that. Another example would be people with an autistic spectrum disorder who may be very reliant on their routine and find it really difficult when that has to change and find it really difficult to understand why it suddenly has to change after they've been doing the same thing for some time. And Aswini, can you give us a bit of a rundown of in, in the Coronavirus Act and, and also the regulations, how the new rules and laws fit around um, people who lack ment mental capacity and what effect it's likely to have on them? Yes, well, of course. Well, what we're really talking about are powers to restrict and control 
behavior and freedom of movement and in the interest of containing the spread of the coronavirus. And for our purposes, there are two essential sets of regulations or, or uh, schedules that do that. One is what we might call the lockdown regulations. And those are the ones that are affecting all of us all the time currently, whereby uh, the government has um, issued a, a lockdown program, which places restrictions on our everyday movements and gatherings outside the home, and they apply to everybody. Um, so they're the ones that deal with the closure of premises and businesses and prevent us from leaving our home without a reasonable excuse. So the reasonable excuses might be such things as to shop for basic necessities or to exercise um, or, you know, there's a list of things that you can do. But those are the things that we've, you know, come, co commonly come to discuss in relation to these lockdown regulations. Um, in relation to people who are in, say, institutions and are subject, subject to the care of others, so quite often, obviously, people who don't have the capacity to care for themselves or to decide where they live for themselves might live in a care home or in another kind of supported living type arrangement. And um, so for, for people like that, obviously, they are obviously subject to these uh, lockdown regulations also. And so they can go out with reasonable excuse. And there's a specific um, provision there that uh, you can go out into a gathering in public if you are if you need uh, more than uh, two people to be there with you um, uh, to care for you, then that might be one of the exceptions that that can apply to you. So that would allow people uh, needing care to go out and about with more than one carer and not contravene those regulations. Um, the, the, the difficulties about that set of regulations also is that, of course, if you are found out and about uh, by, say, and by a police officer, the police have powers to take you back to where you came from, and they can exercise a reasonable force in order to do that. And, and that might uh, create some problems where the police don't reg regularly have training in relation to how to deal with uh, vulnerable people with mental impairments and, and lack of capacity. Um, and also, of course, if you don't comply with what's required of you, you, you could be subject to criminal uh, penalties or fixed penalties and fines uh, and an offence is created if you don't comply. So that's that set of lockdown regulations. Uh, the Coronavirus Act also provides some pretty heavy duty coercive powers uh, in relation to people who may be infected or who are infected with coronavirus which allows someone called a public health officer. We're not entirely sure who that's going to be. It's going to be something like a public health consultant uh, to uh, take you to a particular place, might be in your home, might be in a hospital or another facility, and to provide or to, and to require you to submit yourself to screening and assessment. So screening could be taking a biological sample, that could be taking a, a swab from inside your nose or inside your mouth. So possibly quite invasive if you've got someone without any capacity and you don't really understand what's going on. Uh, or, or it might be um, collecting information, personal information from you about where you've been, what's on your mobile phone, who you've been in contact, where you've been traveling to. Um, it then allows the public health officer with the assistance of constables and immigration officers. I mean, it sounds pretty heavy heavy duty um, to keep you in a, a, a particular place 
to undertake these uh, the screening and the assessments. And then after that's uh, done, if you are found to have the virus, or if still not clear whether you have it or not, uh, this pu the public health officer can then require you to remain for periods of time, up to 14 days at a time, essentially, or to isolate yourself for further periods. So those are obviously the things that are then making uh, you know people who are reading these regulations um, raise their eyebrows because it looks very much like um, those are powers of detention. They can further they can detain people in those places for for assessment and treatment. So uh, that's a very broad rundown of some fairly complicated rules, I have to say. Um, I think the closest analogy that we were able to come to in relation to this kind of fairly unusual set of provisions is that it looks a lot like the Mental Health Act to us, because it looks like a set of provisions to compel someone to accept some kind of medical intervention uh, without them having to consent to it. And the only example of that that we currently have really is the Mental Health Act, which um, permits someone to be admitted to hospital compulsorily to be treated for their mental disorder. But of course, coronavirus is not a mental disorder. It's a physical illness. Um, and so it's something quite different. So that's why we say these are really unusual, um, heavy, coercive powers for people with a physical illness um, and, and might allow them to be detained. So I'm going to stop there because these are, there's a lot more to be said, but um, I'm, I'm sure there are some questions that uh, you have yeah well, well I, I thought next let's move to the human rights implications so um sophie do you want to talk about the potential human rights issues that might arise certainly i think one of the things i find quite interesting about the schedule is the type of language that's uh, used about it so as when was saying that we're familiar with the, the mental health act um, the Mental Health Act expressly has a power to detain people um, and it, it's a framework uh, that's um, prescribed by law for the detention of people um, and uh, there, as such it allows the state to do what would otherwise be a, a violation of the, um, the, the person's rights under Article 5. Now the schedule talks about requiring people to remain in places or keeping them in places um, but in reality, you know, that must mean preventing them from leaving uh, and it must mean detention. And therefore, that will be an interference with their rights under Article 5 of the Convention. Um, what, what's Article 5 and what does it mean? Article 5 of the Convention protects our right to liberty and security of the person. And of course, there are plenty of circumstances where it's acceptable and lawful for the state to detain people. And one of them is the prevention of the spread of infectious diseases. So uh, this schedule looks like a legal framework that's geared to lawfully allow detention, but they don't actually call it detention. Um, however, it's, it's, it's got that structure and it does permit an appeal to the magistrates by uh, a person who's made the subject of, of some of these restrictions and requirements. So that's one um, aspect of, the, um, of the, the, the provisions that plainly engages rights under the Convention. And the other, of course, is um, the rights under Article 8 of the Convention, and that's our right 
um, to respect for our private and family life, home and correspondence, and uh, plainly um, a schedule that permits you to be uh, kept away from your home or kept in isolation, or as as Winnie has explained, um, uh, provide samples or provide personal information, again is going to interfere with your Article 8 rights, and therefore it has to be um, fully justified, it has to be um, in accordance with the law, and it has to be necessary and proportionate. And again, we note when we look at the schedule, it does require at each stage for the um, whoever is exercising the powers, whether it's the constable or whether it's um, the public health official, um, to be satisfied that the that, that, that they're acting in a way that is necessary and proportionate. So we can see that the provisions are trying to uh, operate in a framework that's compliant with human rights legislation. Can I just add um, to that, Adam, that like the Mental Health Act, it's it's right that if a person is cooperating with these provisions, so screening and assessment and lockdown restrictions voluntarily, then emergency provisions will not be needed. But the, the question we're obviously addressing is what do, you, what do you do if the person is unable to provide informed consent to, to these restrictions? So the people lacking capacity, how does a public health officer um, deal with someone who they suspect to have coronavirus infection, but who has autism or who has dementia? And do will they have the skills and the training to assess that person with the dignity and autonomy that that say, the Mental Capacity Act requires. And I, I mentioned the Mental Capacity Act there because what, what we should have said and what's clear is that none of these provisions explicitly refer to the one piece of legislation which actually governs how people who are unable to make decisions for themselves uh, must be uh, assessed uh, in order to, to, to promote their rights, autonomy and dignity. It's interesting to note that the schedule... And the regulations provide for uh, responsible adults to be expected to uh, make sure that children cooperate with the the requirements um, of the regulation or the schedule. Uh, But there's no equivalent provision to um, care for carers for those who may lack capacity or may not be able to comply because of mental disorder. And I think one, one other thing that may be worth mentioning is that um, this is a time where community services and social care services are under enormous pressure. Uh, so it's quite possible that there may be some people who have been receiving a degree, of a, a level of care in the community that they can no longer go on receiving because of the pressure that local services are under. So um, the there's a real possibility that there may be people who are getting less support in the community than they had been, uh, making it even more difficult for them uh, to cooperate with these restrictions. And, and what do you think the, what can be done? Because obviously we're, we're in a, a super emergency type situation and will be for at least a few more weeks and possibly months. Um, do you think is the answer sensitive guidance for police um are the should the laws be um amended to assist um and make sure that the human rights obligations are complied with i mean it's just so difficult to know how to approach this yes you're right because of course you know i don't think there's anyone who would 
doubt the need to take uh, emergency action to pr prevent the spread of the, of the virus. So that, that's quite clear. The good reason for bringing in some laws to do that. But what we want, of course, are laws that are lawful, they're certain and accessible to all uh, and are operated um, within the rule of law and the human rights framework. What has been promised within this set of rules uh, for this set of people uh, is guidance um, around uh, the use of um, existing um, deprivation of liberty safeguards, for example, should they be needed to help to enforce the lockdown regulations and so on. But we haven't got those yet. So um, it, I think the obvious thing is to go towards training, um, training for the police, but also for care staff, care home staff. All of these people are finding themselves in brand new situations, um, which uh, you know they need some guidance to navigate. So, I mean, I noticed that the College of Policing have just produced some, I think yesterday, some really quite useful and sensitive guidance to generally how police should apply the regulations and, and particularly these VEX questions, which they don't really cover mental capacity. They talk about vulnerability and people with mental health issues, but it's pretty it's pretty basic. And it may be that the, the answer is at least the short-term answer is to get out some decent guidance um, and and hope that the police will be able to um, manage situations insofar as they as they approach them. I mean, it, it's obvious that a full training programme, there's no time to do that. We, we know that the police have been criticised for their use of drones in the Peak District and so forth. There's a heavy-handed uh, approach to what's been presented to them. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the past also shows us that through various different fora like inquests and in other sort of civil actions that, that have been reported, so the police don't have any training, you know, over a long period of time in how to recognise people who are uh, mentally ill or to recognise someone who has a learning disability. It's just not part of their, it would appear, not a sufficient part of their training. So I think that flagging it up is a big issue. If, if someone knows when to ask for help, um, and when when to stop and go, this is a situation which I, I, I don't know how to handle this situation. It looks like I'm going to need some help from somebody else. Uh, and that in itself would be quite helpful so that they don't go into a situation and make it worse. I think that sounds like very sensible advice. Um, and I, and, and I've, it, 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 this is going to constantly... Um, be an issue for the next few weeks and months I expect and we'll be probably unfortunately picking up the pieces for a long time um, but thanks so much for your time Aswini and Sophie and, and perhaps we'll, we'll talk again in the coming weeks to see if, if there has been a change in this very fast moving situation Thank you Thank you very much Thank you so much to my guests um, Aswini Wiramante QC Sophie Miles and Kirsty Brimlow QC who are all barristers at Doughty Street Chambers the podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London for 2020. They're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to read the regulations and law and guidance that I've been talking about, then go to patreon.com forward slash better human where I've posted the links. As always, you can support the podcast. And if you want to give a couple of pounds a month, that would be extremely appreciated. I've been Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>